Welcome to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. Reformation Fellowship provides support and fellowship for all who would stand for the Reformation of Christ Church worldwide. We long to see the church revitalized by the gospel and seek to encourage all who share that vision. We gather together for gospel-hearted fellowship around gospel-minded theology. Welcome back to the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. I am your host, Justin Schell. And we're so glad that you have joined us again and and pray that everything we do here causes you to delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. Today is going to be a little different. This episode uh, won't be like every other episode we've done where there's someone with a lot of wisdom, a lot of experience to share. They've, They've come and my job is to draw out of them as much wisdom and encouragement as I can in our time together. Instead today, I will be sharing about a book called Come and See, A History and Theology of Mission. It's a book that I co-authored with Glenn Scrivener, and we wanted to introduce you to the book and particularly help you think through how your church might use it because it really is written for the local church for small groups at churches or Sunday school classes at churches or women's ministries or men's ministries at churches to use. So want to introduce you to the book, help you think through why we wrote it the way that we did, why it's created the way it is, and uh, maybe some benefits that it could be for you uh, if you are pastoring a church, or if you're an engaged lay leader, maybe how you could use it, or Lord willing, wherever you're at, I hope the next 30 minutes or so are an encouragement to know God's mission better, to understand his heart better, and how that shapes everything in our mission, how it should shape our motivations, our practices, even our joy as we join him on mission. So that's the goal. We'll look at Come and See, A History and Theology of Mission by Glenn Scrivener and Justin Schell. And let's do that together. The first place you have to decide if you're going to think about mission or write about mission is how do we how do we start understanding the mission of God? There's a lot of talk about the mission of God, about living missional lives, planting missional churches. Uh, we we have scholars and, and missiologists talking about missional readings of scripture, uh, about using a missional hermeneutic debate and interaction on what is the missio dei, which is the Latin for the mission of God. Is, is the mission of God simply to help you have a bodiless existence for eternity in a place called heaven where you sit on clouds and strum your harps all day long? Is that the mission of God or is, or is the mission of God to bring the full restoration to all things in the cosmos? And that cosmic shape of the mission of God, is that the mission of God? Uh, and how do we know how those things relate to each other? Well, the, the former is, um, is a very, very bad, thin uh, reflection on what, what life in the new heavens and the new earth will be. Um, but it, it juxtaposes that individualistic salvation message 
um, that is a part of our evangelical heritage and the history of the church with um, the cosmic implications of the gospel uh, that we see in, in scripture. And so uh, how, these are big questions. Where do we start? And um, one, one place that many mission thinkers, missiologists, theologians, many have started at, started with humanity. They might say humanity is the starting point, the lostness of man, the fall of Adam and Eve. That's where we need to start to, to understand God's mission in the world rightly. And, and, and those who care about God's mission in this way want to draw our attention to the truth that, uh, that men and women need Jesus. Two billion people on planet Earth have never heard the name of Jesus. Four billion likely have never heard the gospel in their language. So it, it, because those things are true, you can understand why many would want to start with humanity. Starting with lost people makes sense. Others, however, would say, no, we need to start with, with culture. We need to start with uh, culture and society. There, there's roughly 7,000 people groups, whole ethnicities that are unreached with little to no access to the gospel. And uh, our mission is to communicate the good news to them. And so we've got to learn their language. And, and, and we've got to be able to communicate Christ to people with an Islamic or a Buddhist or a Hindu or animistic worldview. We, we've got to engage cultures. How do we make sure, you know, as, as, we, as we do this, that we are sharing the gospel and not simply some Americanized or Westernized version of Christianity? Do tribal men and women need to speak English, dress in suits and dresses and sing from hymn books and pews to be Christian? These are questions that um, missiologists have wrestled with um, in previous decades to our own. Um, they, they, uh, they highlight the importance of thinking about culture, of thinking about contextualization, of avoiding syncretism as well. And so you could understand that if someone said, let's start with Let's start with culture. Uh, we want to see the gospel brought into these ethnicities, these ethno-linguistic peoples, these megacities. And so let's start there. Recently, a place to start, and I mentioned it at the very beginning, for many mission scholars and theologians is creation. It's argued that God intends to not only redeem humanity, but the entire cosmos. So, so, so some wonder if perhaps God's mission and the church's role in it should include the non-human created order. After all, the Lord isn't just saving us from an existence where we are souls without bodies living in some holy stratosphere, right? But instead, he is going to renew all of creation. We will live with him forever in the new heavens, in the new earth, a renewed creation. We might talk about wanting to see human flourishing in our communities, in our society. We might want to talk about shalom and how, um, how men and women are not only reconciled to God, but that there is a, there's a desire in God and there is the power within the gospel that reconciles men and women to each other. It reconciles neighborhoods and cultures. 
And so those who want to emphasize creation will, will call our attention to these sorts of communal aspects, communal fruits of the gospel. So how can we argue against the truth that God will make all things new? So what do we say? The Bible is clear that men and women are lost. They need the gospel. The, the Bible is is uh, gives us our, our marching orders and make disciples of all peoples. And so we, we have to engage those nations, those peoples. And uh, God is making all things new. But I don't think that these are the three, that these three things are the place to start for the discussion about God's mission. They're important. They should be a part of the discussion about God's mission. Absolutely. But they're not the place to start. The, the danger of starting with any of these things is that they become the center of God's mission. And that's the point. It's God's mission. So we must start with God. We start with God because his mission flows out of who he is, out of what he is like. If we understand God, his mission will be clear. If we really know what God is like, if we begin to ask, what is God after? then we'll understand what the mission of the church is. Let me illustrate. In the year 610 AD, an Arab trader alone in a cave in the west of the Arabian Peninsula was visited by an angel named Jibril. This was the same angel, Gabriel, who visited the Virgin Mary to announce the birth of Jesus, or so the story goes. Over the next 23 years, this angel is reported to have revealed truth from the one God to this traitor, now political leader, and thus Islam was born. The traitor turned politician was Muhammad. The revelations were, a few generations later, collected together in the Quran, the Islamic scriptures. And by the time of Muhammad's death, the Muslim com community had grown substantially. It was a military force to be reckoned with in Arabia and surrounding areas. So how did that happen? I don't mean how did they win the battles. I mean, how did angelic revelations result in an arms race in the Middle East? Could it be that the revelations instructed them to engage the world militaristically? Yes, that, that's, that's true. But go back even further. The real reason Islam has a political and military mission is because of the very nature of the God of Islam. Let me explain. The God of the Quran, the God of Islam, is called Allah. What is he like? Well, the first thing many Muslims may tell you about Allah is this, that you cannot know Allah, you can only know his will. This basic Islamic doctrine from the famous Iranian Muslim theologian Al-Ghazali. You can know what Allah wants from you, but you cannot know him. If you somehow get to paradise, he will not be there. Relationship with you has never been on his agenda. And the reason for that is that Allah for eternity was all alone. Allah was a single, what we would call a solitary monad, a single eternal person. There was no one else with him in eternity. So at his core, he is not a relational deity. This is Allah. And if this is what Allah is like, knowing no relationship for all of eternity, why would he ever create people? Would he create them for relationship? No. Now we can start to form an answer by noticing what Islam means. 
The word Islam literally means submission. A Muslim is one who submits. So why did Allah create humanity? To have subjects, to have people who would submit to his will, do what he says. Now, this is why even prayer in Islam is not a relational thing. You pray five times a day, yes, but you don't pray it in your language necessarily. You pray it in Arabic, and you don't decide what you say. You pray these specific words. It doesn't matter if you understand Arabic. Just memorize them and just say them. That is what prayer is for, for you to just do it. Remember, you cannot know Allah. You can only know his will. And so prayer in this case isn't a relational thing. It's not a conversation. It is a duty. It is one of the things within Islam that you must do. Well, if this is true, if, if, if God has created humanity to have subjects, then why would Allah give you a book? What's the Quran for? Again, it's not to help you know Allah. You cannot know him. Instead, the Quran was given to tell you what Allah wants you to do. It's a rule book. And if that is true, if that's what Allah is like, if that's why he created humanity, if that's why he gave the Quran, then what would the mission of Islam be? What would it have to be? There's actually a technical term for it. It's called Sharia. That every nation state would be ruled by the law of Allah. Every nation is either part of the house of Islam, Dar al-Islam, submitting to the law of Allah, or that nation, if they're not under Sharia, they're called, they're part of the house of war, Dar al-Harb. Those nations who do not practice Sharia law, and therefore it's territory which must be occupied. That's Allah's mission. The whole world submitting to his law. And that's the reality that nearly 1,800,000,000 men and women lost and blinded by Islam live under every day. What's important for us is to see how the mission of Allah flows directly out of his nature, out of what he's like. That's the mission because that's what Allah is like. And every religion, every religion has a, a mission because every God, every worldview has a mission. You could say every God is a missionary God. And to understand what the mission is, all you have to do is ask what a particular God is like. Zeus is powerful, proud, lustful egoist. So what is his mission? To be the most revered God on Olympus and to have fun carousing with human women when he gets a chance and Hera's not paying attention. That was Zeus's mission because that's what Zeus is like. You could see this similarly with Shiva, Hinduism's God of destruction or, or with the false gods of Mormonism, mission flowing out of the deity. Now, what if we did this with the God of the Bible? What if we began to ask what he's like uh, and allow his nature, allow his heart to inform what we understand his mission to be in the world? Uh, Often when we, when we think about God's mission, we may start with creation, but creation can't tell us who God is in his essence. He, he existed long before the creation did. 
right? And so how do we know God? How can we be, begin to know this God in such a way that we start to understand his, his mission, his heart for the world? Well, I think a good place to start is with John 1. And looking at verse 18, we read, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus has come to show us what God is like. He's come to show us the Father. The Son reveals the Father, right? And, and already that's beginning to change, um, make a significant change to what we saw within Islam, for instance, right? And so no longer in Christianity is prayer a, a rote memorization duty. Now we pray because Jesus taught us, we pray our Father. We pray to the Father, right? And so what would happen if we began to look at God to understand what he's like, who he is, uh, and how that shapes, how that should inform what his mission is? So we've said that, uh, that Jesus reveals the Father. He came so that, that we could know God. Remember, this is the word who was with God in the beginning, who was God in the beginning. And then that word who was God took on flesh and tabernacled with us so we could see his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, right? He came to show us God. We don't start with creation to know what God is like. Otherwise, we might think that he's just simply a creator or he's just, uh, he's just a, a, a ruler of some kind wanting subjects. Um, but if we start with actually the incarnation, we see that God is eternally a father, son, and spirit. A father loving his son, the son uh, fellowshipping and enjoying his father in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So it's, we're, we're, way, we're way departed from, from uh, the loneliness of Allah, aren't we? So the son's taken on flesh. He's revealing the father. And then one of the very best places to go, and we go here in the book uh, to, to see what God is like, is John 17. In John 17, we get to hear, obviously, uh, the son, God the son, talking to God the father. We get to hear a little bit of their unique relationship. We get to hear a little bit about wh what they're like as Jesus is talking to the Father. And actually, we get to see not just what they're like, what, what the one true and living God, the triune God is like, but what he's after in the world. So in, in John 17, in what's called Jesus's high priestly prayer, we see an intimate interaction between Father and Son. And in verse 5, Jesus says, Now, Father... Glorify, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we are. We're not, we're not looking at a single solitary monad like Allah before the world existed, but we see eternally God the Father, God the Son sharing a glory. They had a glory together before the world existed. Jesus preparing to return to the presence of the Father Asked to receive glory, uh, the same glory that he's always shared with the Father. 
Just a few verses later, verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Again, what was God doing before creation? The father was loving his son. More precisely, father, son, and spirit for eternity past were loving one another, delighting in one another, sharing and overflowing towards one another. So if this is our God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally loving and and glorying in each other. If that God, this overflowing God, who is relational in his very being, decided to create, created humanity, what, what what would he be creating for? What would his mission, you might say, be in creating people? Wouldn't it be both in creation and redemption that his love that he has always eternally had and shared would overflow and be shared with more? So it's not that God in this case is lonely and needs to create to have fellowship. Actually, it's the exact opposite. He's so unlonely. He's so happy in his fellowship that it spills over and he wants to share it with more and more and more people. To as many as believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not by the will of the flesh or the the will of man, but by the will of God. That's what God wanted. That's what God wants, right? And so if he gave us a book, what would the Bible be for? Would it be like the Quran, just a book of rules to do what you're told? Well, Jesus says, no, no, John 39 and 40, speaking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures have laws and stories of examples that we might follow all sorts of genres and, um, and exhortations, poetry, history. But Jesus says, it is they that bear witness about me. They're meant to lead you to me. What are the scriptures for? With a God like this, an overflowing God of relation, of love and glory, his scriptures are to bring more and more and more people to him. That's why he would give the scriptures. And that love and glory that Father, Son, and Spirit have always shared, we read in John 17, 22, Jesus says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Right? I, I'm sharing that glory we've always had with them so that they might be drawn into our fellowship. The next verse, describing that, that oneness I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So I've shared the glory with them, Father. And, and as that brings them into relationship, that the world will know two things. The, the, the world will know that you sent me, but also the world will know that you loved them even as you loved me. The love and glory of God 
the eternal love and glory shared between Father, Son, and Spirit being shared with humanity. Being shared now with humanity. That is the mission of God. That's why he created to share his love and glory with sons and daughters. And that's why he redeemed. Whatever else we might think about the Missio Dei, whatever else we might think God's mission is, if it doesn't start here with the very love and glory of God flowing out of his very person, whatever we might talk about, it's not mission. If, if it doesn't, if it's not coming out of this, this is the center. This is the heart. Now, this does have ramifications for humanity, culture, and creation, right? Um, humanity is meant that they were created for relationship with God. They are lost because they're separated from the love and glory of God. And uh, the, the Lord is going after them in order to bring the lost into his family, to share his love and glory with them. What would it look like to share the gospel with lost people? In a way that they understand that. And culture and creation too. It, 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 that These things rotate around this heart. This heart speaks to um, the, the love of God for, for not just individuals, but for peoples, right? That he wants to bring a diverse people to himself, that he wants to, by uh, bringing them to himself, they also begin to be reconciled to each other, right? There's that vertical oneness we read about in John 17, 21 and 23. Jesus twice says that our oneness with God and with each other, human to human, that that testifies to the world that Jesus is the one sent to reveal the Father. That testifies to Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being our Savior, big brother. And so it is being reconciled to God as men and women come into that oneness with God, that then they are made one with each other, with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that spills over too as a testimony to the lost and so there there are societal there is communal imp, uh, implications to this heart of the mission it spills over there's even cosmic spillage there's even cosmic renewal that will happen because of this because what does creation groan and wait for in in romans 8 is Romans 8 waiting for uh, the church to enact perfect legislation for the care of creation? I, I hope we are, we are working well to steward the planet. But when we're talking about redemption, when we're talking about the redemption of the cosmos, well, even, even creation is waits with eager longing for, for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. They're waiting for our adoption to be made final. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom. What kind of freedom? The freedom of the glory of the children of God, that when our adoption is final, when our bodies are renewed, when God's finished his sons and daughters centered mission. Oh, all of creation will be set free from bondage. Just as our bodies will be renewed, it will be renewed. And so these, these other places that we could start to think about mission, um, they're better served if we actually start with God. Because starting with him gives us a clearer picture of what it means for humanity to, to be lost. What it means to work towards um, say, societal reconciliation, what it means for the creation to be renewed, redeemed. It also, starting with God, impacts our motivation for mission. You know, one of the motivations for starting with humanity is that people are lost. And, you know, Paul said, I'm under obligation. He, he cared about the lostness of people. The fact that there is a hell that lost humanity is destined for should motivate us. Right. Or um, the, the desire for society to, to be healthier and happier should should motivate Christians. We should care. We should care about creation that's being stewarded, that it's flourishing, that society is flourishing and experiencing what some might call shalom. Uh, you know, some people would say, why, why do we need motivation? We've been commanded. Just go. Just go. And I think all of these are are OK for the Christian, there's, they're even biblical, right? These motivations. But I think when we come back to seeing God, when we come back to starting with God, I actually think that's the best motivation for mission, knowing God. And I see this as, um, as in a sense, what John is arguing in his gospel. He's written all these things, he says, so that you might, well, and what has he written? He's written all these, all these stories about Jesus's life and teaching. He's, he's exposing us to Jesus. And in John's gospel, Jesus is doing what? He's saying, I'm just doing what the Father has given me to do. I'm just saying what the Father's given me to say. I've come to reveal the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so John is helping us see God. That's what he wants to happen. And, and so he says, I've written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And by believing, you may have life. Right. And so he's written his his gospel for you to see God, to know God, because that saves you. But that also is the motivation for mission. You see, in John one, Jesus has just kind of come on the scene and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. In verse 37, two of his disciples heard him say that, and they began to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned around and, and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. So these, these two disciples, for lack of a better word, spent time with Jesus. 
And then in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and who followed Jesus was Andrew. So Andrew came and saw. He heard Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. And so one of these who followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew has met the Messiah. He's come and seen, right? He has stayed with Jesus, spent time with Jesus. And the first thing we hear about him is that he then goes and tell. There's this come and see and a go and tell thing going on here. Those who come to Jesus, who see him, who spend time with him, want to. They overflow with it. They want to go and tell. The next day in verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip, said to him, follow me. So Philip's now following Jesus. He's spending time with Jesus, too. In verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom, the, whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip. In essence, you could say he, he experienced that come and see, and now he that go and tell. He spent time with Jesus, and he wants to tell people and invite people to Jesus. So he, said, he, he visits Nathaniel. Of course, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip says to him, come and see. Come and see. So that invitation is to come and spend time with Jesus. Come meet him for yourself. Uh, we see this again in John 4 when the woman at the well spends time with Jesus and uh, she, she is shocked by this interaction and, and really transformed so much so that um, she leaves her jar there. She runs into town and she says to the people in verse 29 of, of chapter 4, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Right? She herself spent time with Jesus. And so she goes and tells. And what, how does she do that? Through an invitation, come and see, come and spend time with Jesus. Come and see. And um, so all of a sudden, our evangelism, uh, uh, the motivation for mission becomes, I've so enjoyed Jesus. I so love Jesus. He's revealed the Father to me. I want other people to know Jesus. This, um, I have come and seen. And so now, because I've seen how he really is, what he's really like, I want to go and tell. Right? And that invitation, we see it throughout, um, throughout the rest of the New Testament. Probably my favorite is just to to at the very end of the New Testament in uh, Revelation 19, an angel says to John, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Invite people to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're blessed when they get invited. And what is the, the Spirit and the bride doing? Even as we wait for Jesus' return, the Spirit and the bride, the, second per, the third person of the Trinity and, and the bride of Christ, they're saying, come. Come to the wedding feast. Come and be with Jesus. So our motivation for mission, when we start with God, uh, 
we don't lose the motivation that people are lost. We don't lose the desire for society to um, experience peace and reconciliation. Um, but we, we have the added benefit of the transforming motivation of seeing God and being transformed and wanting others to come and see God as well. And so when we start with God, we get the mission right and the motivation right. We get the, 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 the center, the heart of the mission. And then we know that language acquisition and uh, culture and worldview study and um, communications theory and peacemaking and uh, other, other things that could be a part of what we do as we go out on that mission, they're, they're rightly situated. They're in their right relationship and have the right emphasis when at the center is God himself, his heart for the world, his purpose for creating and redeeming. Uh, and so that, that, that helps us get the mission right and the motivation right. It also helps explain the relationship between word ministry and, and maybe ministries of mercy or, or works, good, good works. Um, because we see at the center is that invitation to come and see, to come share one another in one anotherness with the triune God. That that's the eternal mission of God, you could say. And that's what we will have with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We, we will be with him. We will see his glory. We will share his love, uh, eternal communion of love and glory. Uh, if that is the center, then the thing, then, then we've got to think of our word and our works as whatever helps accomplish that. So how do our words and our works testify in a way that helps bring men and women into that fellowship? Well, certainly our good deeds um, can help point people to Jesus, can help uh, witness in a sense to, to uh, the, the truth, the validity, the goodness of God. Uh, much like general revelation, people can look at creation and they should, without, oppress, without suppressing the truth, they should know that there is a God who is powerful, right? And and as they see the good deeds of the church, they should be able to say, they have a God who must be really good, right? Let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your father. And so like general revelation can point to the deity and the power of God, our good deeds can, can testify to the goodness of God. And yet, it's always that special revelation that's needed for salvation, that's needed for bringing someone out of the kingdom, kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son to share with Father, Son, and Spirit the life of God. And so, because of that, word ministry, proclaiming the gospel, inviting people, right, come and see. Believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Come and see Jesus um, because he's going to show you the Father. Well, that's got to be at the heart of our mission, doesn't it? Um, because that's at the heart of God's mission. 
And so we testify in word and deed um, to this mission of God, to this relational desire from God. And because that's what salvation is like, salvation isn't just a mental ascent and then our, our name gets, you know, checked, you know, for the, our entrance into and in, in, through the pearly gates. It's not just this transaction of I believe and so I, I gain access to a place, but we're actually brought into union with Christ. We actually have the spirit of God put in us. And so this, um, we have a, a, a salvation that is um, union of love and glory. It is a union of love and glory with God. Well, that means that first, we absolutely, we're going to talk about God because we're enjoying him, right? We're overflowing with, with his joy, with his love, with his glory. But we're also going to live like him and be like him because we're united to him. We are, um, we've been grafted in. We are beginning to bear his fruits. His spirit is in us. His laws on our hearts. And so good deeds are, are, ought to be more and more and more are, ought to mark us as we mature in Christ, as we come to be more and more in his image. So word and deed both point the lost to Jesus. But it's also they should be more and more the natural outflow of our relationship with Jesus. So in this way, they're not separate. They flow from the same reality. Uh, they flow from the same heart. It's both the work of the spirit in us by the gospel. Uh, and yet. Uh, we, we still recall, we know that uh, I can never love someone, for instance, with serving them, blessing them. I can't love them into the kingdom. My good deeds can either testify to the truth of the gospel or to the lie of the gospel. Right? I will always be saying something about God with my, with my actions. And what I say with my actions will either be true or a lie about God. And so the, the, the debate about good works and, and our words in mission, what role they play, I think in, uh, in many ways they are joined. They come from the same place. Uh, and at the same time, uh, we want to use them both to bring people to Jesus, to point people to Jesus. But only one of those will be the, the power of God for salvation. And that's the gospel. Well, we talked about a theology of mission and where to start and how to start. And that's how we start the book, Come and See. We look at God, we look at the glory of God, we look at um, uh, scripture and how it tells the story of, of, of redemption. Um, we then look at history, the history of mission for a couple of chapters, giving a, a brief overview, and then look at kind of the current state of the world, and uh, as well as interacting with this question of proclamation and and good works or, or ministries of mercy. 
And so you've gotten to maybe a taster of some bits and pieces of the book. But even if you never read the book, I hope that this episode has blessed you, has been an encouragement to you to come and see. Come and see Jesus. Let him show you the Father again. And then from that place, uh, go and tell. Come and see. Spend time with Jesus. Listen to his words. And then go and tell. And it, as you tell, you know, these examples we've seen from Scripture, they weren't eloquent, were they? They just said, come and see. Come and spend time with Jesus. And so we get to really just invite people to explore Christ. That's our best evangelism is to say, come and read the Bible with me. I can help you understand it. I'll, I'll um, I will. I, I'm not uh, shirking my responsibility to, um, to speak truth, um, but I'm wanting them to encounter Jesus in his word and in, the, in, in any truth that I share based on his word. So I hope you've been encouraged. Uh, I hope this has been a blessing. And I'm so glad that you were able to join us here on this episode of the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. I am Justin Shell, your host, and this one-time speaker, I guess, as well. Have a good day. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Reformation Fellowship Podcast. We pray that this time together has been a blessing to you. The Reformation Fellowship is a ministry of union, and so all that we do, we hope it helps you to delight in God, grow in Christ, serve the church, and bless the world. If that is your hope, that is your desire, then friends, welcome to the fellowship.